You're listening to Radio Maria, Christian Voice in your home. We're now presenting the show with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Um, I spent last week's show speaking about uh, the... Te- may, um, I spent last week's show reading primarily from a French Catholic philosopher, convert actually, Jacques Maritain, writing about... Um, the Jewish question about the roots of anti-Semitism, writing, in fact, in the late 1930s when what was happening in the Third Reich was becoming apparent with the rise of Nazism and the attempt to exterminate the Jews. And he wrote a very deep work um, investigating the, the roots of, the, uh, of anti-Semitism and the roots of the desire to exterminate the Jews, a, a little booklet called A Christian Looks at the Jewish Question. I didn't get through his discussion of anti-Semitism last week, so I wanted to continue with it this week. Uh, But to set the backdrop for it, and uh, to talk a little bit about it before I actually begin continuing to read from A A Christian Looks at the Jewish Question, uh, I want to read from the passage from the Gospel according to St. John that was read at Mass today, uh, when I heard it at Mass, I was struck very forcefully with how precisely, so to speak, it reflected the same fundamental dynamic that Jacques Maritain was reflecting. So let me start by reading that passage. Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, realize that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, and I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember, no slave is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute persecute you. Um, If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, and they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. Now, uh, end of the passage. Um... Now, this is interesting in the context of Maritain's discussion of anti-Semitism because the point that Maritain makes, and we'll get back to his words in a moment, is that the spirit of the world is dead set against two alien spirits that are in the world or alien um, bodies, so to speak, that are in the world that are antithetical to the spirit of the world. One of those alien bodies is um, the church, is Christianity, is the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church gives... uh, Let me back up a little bit. I'm flying by the seat of my pants. The, um, The devil would have won his game if he could convince the world that this world is all there is and the meaning and purpose of life is what you experience between birth and death in this world, and nothing happens after you die. He will have a, uh, establish his victory, if he could convince the world of this, for two reasons. One is, God would not receive any worship and adoration and praise uh, from man, because mankind would not believe in God. And secondly, 
there would be no absolute morality, there would be no rules for man's behavior, and in fact, the pleasures of this world, and even going so far as to say the vices of the flesh, the, the pleasures that are associated with sin, would essentially take the place of the meaning of life. They would become the meaning of life. They would be the purpose of life. The purpose of life would be to have as much pleasure as possible between birth and death. And one doesn't need much imagination to see how extensive the immoral behavior which resulted from that philosophy would be, both in terms of self-indulgence and, and sexual immorality and so forth, but also in terms of the exploitation of others and cruelty towards others and so forth. Because in the end, there would be no rules and there would be no meaning or purpose to anything. And it would be only a matter of maximizing your own pleasure um, in between birth and death, really with no, no regard to the consequences. Because there wouldn't actually be any consequences uh, to the extent that one got away with what one was doing. So you have the spirit of the world, which actually reflects this attitude. In other words, it is, in fact, a reflection the spirit of the world, Jesus said, you know, the spirit of the world is essentially the devil. And the spirit of the world is threatened by belief in God, love of God, and relationship to God. And now we go back to these two alien bodies in the world, which are the Jewish people, who were the first chosen people of God, the first people on earth, really, to know God and to have a personal relationship with God, and who even now represent humanity's longing for God, let's say. And then you have the church, Christianity, which represents humanity having found God, humanity in relationship, in full relationship with God, in the fullest possible relationship, in the case of the Catholic Church, that man can have with God in this period between birth and death. So you see that there are these two indigestible lumps in the world's population, so to speak, that if only the spirit of the world could eradicate them or digest them, he would really control all of mankind. And those two indigestible lumps are the Jewish people and Judaism representing man's search for God and Christianity and the Catholic Church representing mankind's having found God. So with that, which... Um, flows, I think, quite directly from the reading from the Gospel according to John that I began with. Let's turn back to Maritain's writing in A Christian Looks at the Jewish Question. Um, the first few minutes will be a repetition of what I read yesterday, excuse me, last week, but then I will go on to um, the rest of the discussion, which which goes on from there to, to uh, content that I did not get to last week. So, reading from A Christian Looks at the Jewish Question. The diverse specific causes which the observer may assign to anti-Semitism, all the way from the feeling of hate for the foreigner natural to any social group, down to religious hatreds, and to the manifold inconveniences produced by some waves of immigration, mask an underlying spring of hatred deeper down. If the world hates the Jews, it is because the world clearly senses that they will always be outsiders in a supernatural sense. It is because the world detests their passion for the absolute and the unbearable stimulus which it inflicts. It is the vocation of Israel which the world hates. To be hated by the world is their glory, as it is also the glory of Christians who live by faith. But Christians know that the Messiah has already conquered the world. 
Thus, hatred of Jews and hatred of Christians spring from a common source, from the same recalcitrance of the world, which desires to be wounded neither with the wounds of Adam nor with the wounds of the Savior, neither by the goad of Israel for its movement in time, nor by the cross of Jesus for eternal life. We are good enough as we are, says the world. We have no need of grace or transfiguration. We ourselves will accomplish our own happiness in our own nature. This is neither Christian hope in a helping God, nor Jewish hope for a God to come on earth. It is the hope of animal life and its power, deep and in a sense made sacred, demonic, when it masters the human being who thinks himself deceived by the emissaries of the Absolute. That's really, I, I can't stop there. That's exactly uh, said, of course, a thousand times better than I could say it. What I was trying to convey, that the hatred of Jews and the hatred of Christians spring from a common source, which is the spirit of the world that wants to say, which um, uh, wants to say that we have no need of grace or transfiguration, that we will accomplish our own happiness in our own nature, um, and negates both the Christian hope in a God who helps, for the Jewish hope for a God to come. Um, if it succeeds in in making this view universal, then it has uh, mastered humanity. So um, with that, I think I will go on to uh, reading, which I had not done last week. Um, so continuing with Jacques Maritain on the, Christ, on the Jewish question. If we now turn more particularly toward the Christians, it appears that being themselves grafted onto the olive tree of Israel, we must look on the men involved in the Jewish tragedy with a brotherly eye, and as the Apostle Paul teaches them, not without trembling for themselves. It is certainly possible for Christians to be anti-Semites, since one observes the phenomenon frequently enough. But it is possible for them only when they obey the spirit of the world rather than the spirit of Christianity. Strangely enough, certain Christians are heard to remark, Has the world been moved, so they say, by the massacres of so many Christians in Russia, Spain, and Mexico? We will be stirred by the Jewish persecutions when the world will be stirred by the sufferings of our own. When I hear this manner of reasoning, I wonder how it is that from one day to the next, and without even telling me anything about it, my religion has been changed. Does the gospel teach that if a brother has sinned against me, by omission or otherwise, it is justifiable to sin against him in the same fashion? Jesus said, These things you ought to have done, and not to leave those undone. Now it seems it is said, because these things have been left undone, you ought not to do those. Because certain people have been lacking in justice and in love, others must now be similarly deficient. So what Maritain is pointing out here, uh, and it's a little bit painful to, to, for me to point this out, is that at the time that he was writing, that is 1939, um, the world was very much up in arms by, at the persecutions that were going on against the Jewish people. And, of course, the Jews very much wanted the Christian world to react 
very strongly against the persecutions that were going on in the Third Reich in Nazi Germany. And Maritain is pointing out that some Christians responded by saying, but hey, nobody, they didn't complain when Christians were being persecuted, so not, why should we now complain when they are being persecuted? And to this, um, Maritain points out that even if that's true, it's hardly a reflection of Christianity and the teaching of Jesus, because Jesus hardly taught that um, if a brother has sinned against me, it is justifiable to sin against him in the same fashion, which is essentially what they're doing if they're saying the Jews were silent when the Christians were being persecuted, so now it's okay for us to be silent when the Jews are being persecuted. Um, <laughs> um, I, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I, I can't help being unaware as I read this of the bitter irony in the fact that right now, literally right now, uh, the Senate, or at least this week, the Senate was in the process of uh, passing a resolution to punish China for their persecution of Muslims in China. Um, there's nothing wrong with the Senate condemning China or even punishing China for their persecution of Muslims, but it's a little bit uh, bitter to be aware that there was never any mention in the Senate about the China's persecution of Christians, which has gone on for decades, and the comp almost the complete suppression of um, Christianity in China, at least to the extent that the Chinese were able to, and the com total persecution of, of home churches, of informal churches of Chinese believers in, in Jesus, and the uh, tremendous persecution of the Catholic Church, forcing it underground and replacing it with a government-sponsored, government-appointed, um, pseudo-Catholic um, hierarchy of government, of communist government functionaries, when the expressed desire of the communist government in China is to eradicate uh, religion completely and belief in God completely. So it's a little bit sad to be reading this. Um, it was very sad, of course, when the uh, central hatred of the spirit of the world against religion was oriented towards the Jews in 1939. Um, I think there's still a tremendous hatred of the spirit of the world against Jews, which is reflected um, especially in what's going on in the Middle East and in the um, uh, basically Islamic anti-Semitism. But there is also much, much greater than there was in 1939 an expression of the hatred of the world against uh, Christianity and Christians. Um, and that persecution is, is pretty much falling on deaf ears as evidenced by the response of the Senate to the persecution of Muslims in China, but not to the persecution of Christians in China. However, back to Meriton. It is not exact to say that the world remained indifferent to the suffering of Christians in Russia, Spain, and Mexico. It is, however, exact that many who today are full of indignation because of racism remain quite cold regarding the discriminatory laws enacted by certain governments against religious orders and regarding the anti-Christian persecutions which have raged or are raging in so many countries. I object to such unjust indifference and such one-eyed pity, but I do not want to lay myself open 
to the same objection. Let me interject once again. Uh, what Maritain is re um, referring to, and I'm, I'm not sure that we are as aware of it as we should be now in the 21st century, but there was a period uh, beginning really with the French Revolution in the late 18th century, and again emerging with great force in, at the tail end of the 19th century and the first decade and a half of the 20th century, the suppression of religious orders in Catholic and Christian countries. Um, all religious orders, all Catholic orders, of course, were totally suppressed in Great Britain. And they were only um, allowed to reestablish uh, around the turn of the 20th century. And they were completely suppressed in France. And every religious community um, had to either be laicized or leave the country. And it's interesting that this uh, direct attack and forbidding of religion, so to speak, was focused on religious communities, because what's the main problem with religious communities is that they are an undeniable witness to the existence of God and to the fact that God and life after this life is what this life is really all about. You can't see you know, a nun in a habit or a religious brother who has given up marriage and family and, and uh, any physical intimacy during life in order to serve the kingdom of heaven without realizing that at least these people think that the kingdom of heaven is far more important than the kingdom of earth and that life, uh, uh, than life on earth. And so whenever you see these religious it's got to sort of prick one's conscience to wonder if maybe they're right and the spirit of the world is wrong. So I think it's not a coincidence, so to speak, that these secular governments, in their attempt to eradicate belief in God, would focus on the most visible evidence of people really, really, really believing in God to the point that they were kind of ignoring uh, the pleasures of life on earth, which was, of course, uh, religious, whether men or f women religious. Because if you stop to think about it, what are the vows of religious life? Poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, and, uh, boy, th that strikes at the heart of the self-satisfaction in this life, right? The self-satisfaction which comes from the possession of goods, from physical pleasures, and from the ability to exercise one's own will at, at will. And these are exactly the three things which are given up with the, po uh, with the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. So, of course, if the spirit of the world was going to succeed in eradicating the belief in God, they, it would have to succeed in making invisible, uh, erasing, so to speak, these visible signs of the primacy of God. Um, and and it, uh, thank God it hasn't succeeded, and thank God that in the United States we do have um, the religious and religious orders, um, and of course the celibate priesthood. But um, there is a kind of a, a, a kind of secondary way in which the attack is going on, which happens when, uh, frankly, when religious are not visibly religious, so you don't know that they are consecrated to God. And when the, in particular, the self-denial associated, actually all three of the self-denials associated with poverty, chastity, and obedience, 
begin to be questioned even within uh, religious life to the point where there is um, uh, self-indulgence in possession of things, a self-indulgence in uh, perhaps violating chastity, God forbid, and a self-indulgence in an autonomy of the exercise of will and a kind of a negation of um, the absolute quality of religious obedience. Back to Meriton, however. Among careless or partisan writers, many historic confusions arise from the fact of the commingling in medieval civilization of the affairs of the church and the affairs of a secular commonwealth religiously organized, where mundane interests and both the good and evil of human social life were steeped in religion. If one makes the proper distinctions, one can see that, in a temporal civilization where the regime of the ghetto, not to speak of the drama of the Muranos and the Spanish Inquisition, lent itself to the worst anti-Semitic passions and excesses, the Church itself, and as such, was not responsible for the excesses, even if some of its ministers were. It is well enough known that the popes repeatedly defended the Jews, notably against the absurd charge of ritual murder, and that all in all the Jews were generally less unhappy and less badly treated in the papal states than elsewhere. So here Maritain is pointing out that, yes, during the period when Christendom reigned in Europe, during the period when the countries of Europe were overtly Catholic, where in fact every leader of a country in Europe had to be crowned by the Pope in order to have authority over the country. So society and the secular order were visibly and self-consciously Catholic. There was a tremendous amount of um, anti-Semitic passion and activity. And it's important to note that it wasn't the church itself which was responsible for those excesses even if some of the ministers of the church were, and in fact the popes repeatedly defended the Jews. So the fact that the temporal society, let's say, was overtly Catholic, and that the temporal societies were sometimes violently anti-Semitic, didn't mean that it was the Catholic Church itself that was being anti-Semitic. A very important uh, point for Meriton to make. Continuing. Western civilization emerging from the Holy Roman Empire and the medieval regime, while in jeopardy of collapsing in other respects, as we know, freed itself from the strong impurities which this regime entailed. And it would be a singular aberration if Christians wish to return to those impurities at the moment when they have lost their historic reason for existing. Today, anti-Semitism is no longer one of those accidental blemishes of a secular Christendom in which evil was mixed with the good. It contaminates Christians like an error of the spirit. I recall to the reader's mind that in a document of the Holy Office, dated September 5, 1928, which was directed against the mistakes of a too zealous association of the Friends of Israel, the Catholic Church has explicitly condemned this error of anti-Semitism. Racist errors were again condemned April 13, 1938, in a pontifical document, a letter of the Sacred Congregation of Seminaries and Universities. And it is well known that Pope Pius XI spoke out vigorously against the racist campaign and racist measures inaugurated by the Italian government in imitation of the German government. To the concept and word race, figuring in the theories imported from Germany, he opposed magnificently the ancient Latin idea 
of gents and populace, the connotation of which belonged to much more to the moral than to the biological order. The following passages of a discourse pronounced in September 1938 before the directors of the Belgian Catholic Radio Agency are also to be noted. Commenting upon the words of the Canon of the Mass, Sacrificium Patriarche Nostri Abrahe, the sacrifice of our father Abraham, the Pope said, quote, Note that Abraham is called our patriarch, our ancestor. Anti-Semitism is incompatible with a thought and sublime reality expressed in this text. It is a movement in which we Christians can have no part whatsoever. Anti-Semitism is unacceptable. Spiritually, we are Semites. Spiritually, we are Semites. No stronger word has been spoken by a Christian against anti-Semitism, and this Christian is the successor of the Apostle Peter. So let me go back and uh, just kind of um, underline what Maritain was saying in the last few paragraphs, which is that, yes, when Christendom, uh, uh, when the, excuse me, when the governments throughout Europe were overtly Catholic, and when the social order was overtly Christian, there was a lot of state-sponsored anti-Semitism, which could be confused with being an expression of the Catholic Church, although it wasn't an expression of the Catholic Church. However, now that the governments are overtly secular, there is no excuse for such a confusion. And any anti-Semitism that is reflected in by Christians is an aberration and a contamination of Christianity. And in particular, with respect to the Catholic Church, Meriton goes on to point out some very recent, in his day, condemnations of all anti-Semitism, which was uh, condemnations made by the popes of the time against anti-Semitism in many of its forms. And so, in fact, he points out that Pope Pius XI spoke out against the anti-Semitic policies of the Italian uh, government. Um, I believe that would have been in the early 30s. It might have been in the late 20s. And he points out that famous quote, which at the time he was writing this was, was very recent, of, of Pope Pius XI, that um, anti-Semitism is unacceptable. Spiritually, we are all Semites. That uh, Pope Pius XI points out that in the canon of the Mass itself, every time the Catholic Church celebrates the Mass, it refers to Abraham as our patriarch, our ancestor. And so um, it is anti-Semitism is, as Pius XI expressed it, anti-Semitism is entirely incompatible with the thought and sublime reality expressed in this text, that is the text from the canon of the Mass itself, uh, that refers to Abraham as our father, our patriarch, Abraham. That is the father, the patriarch of the Catholic Church, Abraham. Again, as uh, back to Meriton, spiritually we are Semites. No stronger word has been spoken by a Christian against anti-Semitism. And this Christian is the successor of the Apostle Peter. That was uh, Pope uh, Pius XI. Back to the text. Um, by the way, let me interrupt myself for a moment. 
and say that usually this is a live call-in program. There has been some difficulty with the telephone system at the studio today, so we will not be receiving calls, very unfortunately. I'm very sorry about that. Um, I hope that um, this difficulty is very short-lived, and by the time we do our next program, we'll be in a position to receive calls again. So anyway, but back to, I will interrupt, I guess, to say you are listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, Roy Shoman, who is me. And if you tuned in recently, I have been reading from and discussing from a book uh, by a Catholic philosopher, Jacques Maritain, uh, who wrote this book at the, in 1939, A Christian Looks at the Jewish Question. And it is a deeply philosophical and slightly theological exploration of the phenomenon of anti-Semitism and the relationship of the church and anti-Semitism and the relationship between the spirit of the world, the Jewish people, the church, and anti-Semitism. Continuing with the text. As for its moral as for its moral characterization from the Catholic viewpoint, Anti-Semitism, if it spreads among those calling themselves disciples of Jesus Christ, seems to be a pathological phenomenon which indicates a deterioration of Christian conscience when it becomes incapable of accepting its own historic responsibilities and of remaining existentially faithful to the high requirements of Christian truth. Then, instead of recognizing the trials and shocks of history, as the visitations of God, and instead of assuming those burdens of justice and charity demanded by that fact, it turns aside to substitute phantoms relating to an entire race, phantoms which derive a certain consistency from various real or fancied pretexts, and in giving free rein to feelings of hate which it believes justified by religion, it seeks for itself a sort of alibi. It is no little matter, however, for a Christian to hate or despise or to wish to treat degradingly the race from which sprung his God and the Immaculate Mother of his God. That is why the bitter zeal of anti-Semitism always turns in the end into a bitter zeal against Christianity itself. Imagine, wrote Leon Blois, that people about you were to speak continually of your father and your mother with the greatest contempt and to have for them only insults or outrageous sarcasm. What would be your sentiments? Well, that is exactly what is happening to our Lord Jesus Christ. We forget, or rather we do not wish to know, that as our man, our Lord was a Jew, the epitome par excellence of the Jewish nature, the line of Judah, that his mother was a Jewess, the flower of the Jewish race, that the apostles were all Jews, along with all the prophets, and finally, that our entire liturgy is based on Jewish books. How then express the enormity of the outrage and blasphemy involved in vilifying the Jewish race? I'm going to repeat those last two paragraphs. I will be in a moment or two going to the musical break that we usually take about halfway through the program. Uh, I know I'm a few minutes late now, but um, we will be going to that musical break in about two minutes after uh, I reread those last two paragraphs because I think they are 
They summarize this all very beautifully. It is no little matter for a Christian to hate or despise or to wish to treat degradingly the race from which sprung his God and the Immaculate Mother of his God. That is why the bitter zeal of anti-Semitism always turns in the end into a bitter zeal against Christianity itself. Imagine that people about you were to speak continually of your father and your mother with the greatest contempt and to have for them only insults or outrageous sarcasm. What would be your sentiments? Well, that is exactly what is happening to our Lord Jesus Christ. We forget, or rather we do not wish to know, that as a man our Lord was a Jew, the epitome par excellence of the Jewish nature, the Lion of Judah, that his mother was a Jewess, the flower of the Jewish race, that the apostles were Jews, along with all the prophets, and finally, that our whole liturgy is based on Jewish books? How, then, can one express the enormity of the outrage and the blasphemy involved in vilifying the Jewish race? That could be the theme of of Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism of this entire show. And with that, let's go to the musical break. You're listening to Roy Shulman on the show on Radio Maria, Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism. And we'll be back in a few moments. Hi, uh, welcome back. I, I've been spending today's show talking about anti-Semitism seen through the eyes of a wonderful Catholic philosopher, Jacques Maritain, from the uh, first two-thirds of the 20th century. And I've come to the end of the reading that I was doing from him, so I will uh, continue the show with reading from another wonderful Catholic uh, I don't know if I can call him a philosopher. He's certainly a, a scholar and a theologian, and he is, in fact, a Jewish convert, and that is the uh, relatively recently deceased Cardinal Jean-Marie Lustiger, who was a uh, Jewish convert. He was raised Jewish. He converted um, in his teenage years. He entered the Catholic Church, and he went on to not only become a priest, but to become a cardinal and the Cardinal Archbishop of Paris. And in fact, at the time of the election of uh, Pope Benedict, he was uh, papabile, in a sense. In other words, he was you know, in the, in the, uh, among the cardinals who could have conceivably been elected uh, pope. And so let me read some of his beautiful writings on the nature of anti-Semitism and essentially the anti-Christian nature of anti-Semitism, the diabolical nature of anti-Semitism, which is actually directed as much against Christ as it is against the Jews, um, which only makes sense when you stop to think about it, because, of course, A, Jesus was a Jew, and the devil can't get at Jesus directly, but he can get at Jesus's blood relatives, so to speak, the Jews, and B, that the Jews are responsible, in a sense, for having brought about redemption through Jesus, and therefore, and, and therefore, uh, in, in so doing, uh, bringing about the devil's ultimate downfall, and therefore, there, it's logical that the devil should have a special hatred against the Jews, because, in fact, they were the vehicle through which he was ultimately defeated. And finally, a third reason why the devil should hate the Jews is that there can't be a second coming 
until there's a conversion of the Jews. We know this from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 674 says, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel, which is the Catholic teaching going back to the very first of the Church Fathers, that there has to be a widespread conversion of the Jews before the Second Coming can happen. And of course, when the Second Coming happens, the devil's game is up for good. You know, he no longer... He will have no even individual victory of of uh, condemning a single human soul after the second coming. His game will be completely up, and he will be totally defeated um, and and uh, chained, of course, for all eternity. And therefore, the more he can do to delay the conversion of the Jews, the more he can do to delay the second coming and still try to make kind of temporary victories of leading more human souls into damnation. So anyway, let me go to Lustiger's uh, reflections on the directly diabolical and anti-Christian nature, in fact, of um, anti-Semitism. Um, so Hitler's, Hitler's anti-Semitism had its roots in the anti-Semitism of the Enlightenment, and not in a Christian anti-Semitism. It was a refusal of the Jews' divine election, a hate for their religious singularity. The Jews, as figures of election, caused jealousy and catalyzed on themselves the Nazis' negation of man and God. I mention in passing that Nazism perverted the notion of a chosen people in order to create a diabolical messianism of their own, it was not subjected to God, but on the contrary looked to the coming of the Superman and thus to the anni annihilation of the rest of humanity. Nazism identified election with domination and unconscionable privilege. So what Lustiger is saying is that the Nazi anti-Semitism, hatred of the Jews, was in fact a hatred of God, an attack on God, catalyzed by the Jews being the figure of election, referred to in the Old Testament as the, as the chosen people, and um, therefore they brought down on themselves as lightning rod, so to speak, the Nazis' negation of both man and God. And in their negation, in the Nazis' negation of the election of the Jews, they created a diabolical perversion of the election of the Jews, which of course was the superiority of their Aryan race and the coming of the Superman and its domination, their domination over all of the rest of humanity. So they, it's again, it's a diabolical reversal. The election of the Jews was an election to bring about the salvation of humanity through the coming of Christ. That's what it meant that the Jews were the chosen people. They were chosen. They were not chosen because they're better than other people. They were chosen to bring about the incarnation. They were chosen to host God as man when God became man. They were chosen to um, facilitate the salvation of mankind, whereas the election of the Nazis, uh, you know, Aryan superiority, the, their diabolical messianism, their election, their chosenness, was to uh, dominate and enslave the rest of mankind. So you can see this kind of complete 180-degree shift, this diabolical reversal of the election of the Jews in the superiority 
of the Nazis. Continuing with the words of Cardinal Lustiger, Yes, Israel has its reason for being until the coming of the heavenly kingdom. The Jews, the Jewish people, exist because God has chosen them. They have no other reason for existing, not even national sentiment. The existence of the chosen people concerns God's plan for humanity. If Israel exists, it is because God has chosen this people for the purpose of saving all mankind. I'm glad that Lissage is saying this because I would be scared to say this because of a fear of getting in too much trouble for saying it. This is you know, Cardinal Archbishop Lustiger speaking, and what he said was, the existence of the chosen people concerns God's plan for humanity. If Israel exists, it is because God has chosen this people for the purpose of saving all mankind. It is God who has favored Israel. God brought it into existence for the salvation of all humanity, for the coming of the rain, and according to the promise, it is in Israel that the Messiah, suffering, has already appeared. Until the Messiah's coming in glory, the Jew remains, and he remains a Jew whether he is Christian or not. Israel is a guarantee that the second coming will come. Now, let me just um, clarify that when Lustiger is using the word Israel, of course, he is not referring to the nation-state of Israel. He is referring to the corporate body of the Jewish people as Israel. Uh, continuing with the words of Lustiger, the Pope, uh, this would be um, Pope John Paul II when Lustiger says the Pope, Pope John Paul II asked Christians to discover the Jewish people by looking at them not just in the Bible, but also in the history of the last 2,000 years, to understand the reason for all people, why the Jewish people were chosen. Mistaking or renouncing this election would deprive of all its meaning the history of salvation, which is the basis of the Christian faith, the foundation of the Christian faith, and perhaps all human history as well. For Christians, how enriching it will be to accept the election of Israel as a fundamental datum of human history, and consequently to consider their own vocation in this light. Um, let me interrupt again. Uh, my first book, Salvation is from the Jews, the subtitle was The Role of Judaism in Salvation History from Abraham to the Second Coming. I think Lustiger is underlining this, that the election of the Jewish people, the, the chosenness of the Jewish people, is at the foundation of all of salvation history and, in fact, therefore, of human history in itself. Um, the, if one mistakes or renounces the concept of the election of the Jewish people, one deprives of all its meaning the history of salvation, which is the foundation of the Christian faith, and even all of human history as well. That is a very strong statement. It is, of course, the reason why I wrote Salvation is from the Jews. And uh, it's worth me, I'm going to reread that paragraph. Pope John Paul II asked Christians to discover the Jewish people by looking at them, not only in the Bible, but also in the history of the last 2,000 years, to understand the reason for all people why the Jewish people were chosen. Mistaking or renouncing this election would deprive of all its meaning the history of salvation, which is the foundation of the Christian faith, and perhaps even all of human history as well.
for Christians how enriching it will be to accept the election of Israel as a fundamental datum of human history and consequently to consider their own vocation in this light. Continuing, um, now I am continuing with the words of John Paul II on his address uh, when he visited the synagogue of Rome in 1986, which was the first time in over 1900 years that a pope visited the synagogue of Rome. The last previous pope who visited the synagogue of Rome was the very first pope, St. Peter. The second pope to visit the synagogue of Rome was Pope John Paul II and St. John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul II, and when he did, he said the following, The Church of Christ discovers her bond with Judaism by searching into her own mystery. It is not lawful to say that the Jews are repudiated. The Jews are beloved of God, who has called them with an irrevocable calling. So here is St. John Paul II saying it is not lawful to say that the essentially that God has turned his back on the election of the Jews. It's not lawful to say in his words that the Jews are repudiated. The Jews are beloved of God who has called them with an irrevocable calling. In other words, it's not that the Jews were once beloved of God, but because they turned on Christ, they are now detested by God, and God has renounced his election of them, um, which, is a, which is a concept which has been held by even Catholic theologians. But John Paul II is very directly taking this on and saying, once again, it is not lawful to say that the Jews are repudiated, the Jews are beloved of God, who has called them with an irrevocable calling. So now let me go back to Lustiger, um, talking more about how the Nazis, in their hatred of the Jews and in their desire to exterminate the Jews, were directly puppets of the devil and simply expressing the will of the devil in their actions. The Nazis are only weak creatures, puppets, immersed in an absolute evil that surpasses them. They are victims of their own ignominy. You may demonstrate that a particular person is a sadist, but you will have given only a limited explanation. You may show that the sadist controlled the levers of an immensely powerful machine that brought about an appalling death for his victims. But you are still faced with someone insignificant who does not suffice to explain what happened. That pathetic man is only a contemptible man, and it is normal that he should seem insignificant because the face hidden behind his is Satan's. It is the face of evil in our world, of evil's power, which is so vast as to be unimaginable for the human mind. Those men we see are only the servile actors. Yes, they are individuals who should unquestionably be held responsible for the crimes committed, but the evil that surged up in them infinitely surpassed them. It was not a war like the others. This is, of course, referring to the Second World War. I felt that we had been plunged into an infernal abyss. At the heart of the opponent's ideology was the persecution of the chosen people, the Jewish people, because they are a messianic people. 
When as a child I spent time in Nazi Germany, I had understood. Nazism's aim was more than Promethean. It was satanic. This utterly overwhelming conflict can be understood only within the mystery of the suffering Messiah and the redemption with the struggle that it implies. Uh, end of the citation, which was from um, Cardinal Archbishop uh, Lustiger, Jean-Marie Lustiger, the former Cardinal Archbishop of Paris. I believe he passed away about 10 years ago. It's taken from a book-length interview with him called Choosing God. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Um, I, it's a topic that fascinates me. Of course, I'm not in a position to know whether it is, uh, fascinates you also, but if you've listened this long, perhaps it must have some interest to you. We've been discussing essentially the philosophical and theological roots of anti-Semitism as explained and expounded on in the writings of the uh, French Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain and the French Catholic Jewish convert Cardinal Archbishop Jean-Marie Lustiger. You've been listening to me, Roy Shoman, on the show on Radio Maria, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. And we have come to the end of our time for today. I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.